We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good afternoon and welcome to One Hour at a Time. Recovery begins with education and host Mary Woods is here to educate individuals and families and provide support through the recovery process. Now here's your host, Mary Woods. Welcome to One Hour at a Time with Mary Woods. Uh, My name is John McAndrew and I'm your guest host today. And we're going to be talking about courageous recovery changing the face of mental illness, and our guest is Carol Kivler. And when we talk about mental illness, it's easy to think that it it won't impact your life, but more than likely it will, be it a family member, a friend, or even yourself. And finding the right strategies to face mental illness and embark on a journey towards recovery can be quite challenging. So our guest today will share some thoughts and strategies uh, in achieving and maintaining a courageous recovery. And Carol Kibberler is a passionate consumer advocate, speaker, author, and founder of Courageous Recovery. And she speaks to consumers and healthcare professionals. She's been on television and radio. She's been all over the country. And uh, she's a, uh, the founder and president of Kibbler Communications. And they train and teach people how to how to teach and train other people. So we're we're very honored to have Carol as our guest today. Welcome, Carol. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, I have to admit, I got your little your newest book. Now you've written um, several books. The ABCs of Recovery from Mental Illness is your newest. You also are the author of Will I Ever Be the Same Again. Mm-hmm. And transforming the face of ECT shock therapy, and um, I told you before we started, I love the ABCs of recovery from mental illness because it's very short and simple. Mm-hmm. That was my goal there, John. It is. Can you tell us and our listeners a little bit about yourself and and why you're here with this? Great message. Okay. Well, um, I was a college professor. The year was 1990. I was um, actually um, uh, starting to have some symptoms that I had never had before, uh, which led me to the doctor. Um, The doctor started testing me for all kind of medical conditions, um, and everything kept coming back negative. And finally, he suggested I see a psychiatrist thinking maybe my, my um, actually my symptoms might be psychosomatic. So we went to the psychiatrist, and within, goodness, an hour of being there, she, the psychiatrist diagnosed me with um, uh, a bout of clinical depression uh-huh. and, and said that um, there was good, that was the good news, that she knew what it was, and the other good news was that it, it could be treated. Right. So I was very excited because I was really not 
doing very well. I couldn't even teach at that point. And um, so she put me on an antidepressant and then said to me, now you need to be patient because this is going to take about six weeks. And if this doesn't work, we'll put you on another antidepressant. Right. So I went home. Um, I, w- I was hopeful that everything would, be, uh, would work. And within four weeks, John, I was in full-blown psychosis. Oh, boy. Uh, I was uh, consumed with uh, with suicidal ideation, and um, I wasn't sleeping at all anymore, and uh, that led to a hospitalization of 38 days, the first 24, in a lockdown ward because they could not seem to break uh, the psychosis. And so then they recommended something that I thought was very barbaric, which which is um, shock therapy. And so I resisted for a while, and then finally one empathetic nurse really convinced me that I had the most loving family she had ever seen supporting me through this. And um, I did have shock therapy, and it became my um, ladder out of the pit of hell. Wow. When we we hear shock therapy, that's a pretty scary... um, I think we're all taken back to the 50s, right? Exactly. Well, even to the 30s, because that's when it started in 39. Mm -hmm. Um, However, shock therapy is so much different than it was when it was first given, because it is so much more humane and um, so much safer than it it was when it was first delivered. Uh Now, I would like to say that that was the only time I got sick, John, but unfortunately, the beast, as I like to call my depression and anxiety, it returned three more times with um, full psychosis psychotic episodes, but we knew at that point that the only thing that was going to help me was more shock therapy. So I've been in the hospital for over 100 days, cumulative, and I have had over 50 shock therapy. However, I stand stand or, or talk to you today as a person who has been in recovery for the last 12 years. And because of that, I decided to write my little 26 strategies that have kept me in recovery for the last 12 years. Right. And when you say um, uh, in recovery, uh, does that mean not going down into the pit again? That's exactly right. I Uh, haven't been in the pit in 12 years. I am still medicated. I'll be medicated for the rest of my life. Right. Um, And I, I partake in a lot of other kinds of strategies that keep me in wellness for a longer period because depression for me depression and anxiety is a non-curable disease however it is a manageable disease right carol you're teaching college right i am and you've gone to school and 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 it sounds as though you've been pretty successful and you're obviously very successful now and you have a lot of talents in a lot of uh different areas what um what do you know now about how, you know, how did this just show up at your door? Uh, I don't know what age you were. It was 1990. But all of us, did this all of a sudden just knock on your door? It did. Yeah, I was 40 years old, and it, all of a sudden old. it just knocked on my door. Wow. Uh, with, you know, nothing, nothing was drawing it. I mean, my parents wanted to know what they did to me in my childhood that would cause this. My sisters thought I was having an affair or I had committed a criminal act. Everybody wanted a reason. John, there was no reason. It just sh- it just showed up. Uh-huh. And do you think this is, um, what's interesting about this is I, I'm, 
I'm pretty sure that you're armed with a lot of information and experience, and you speak about this. And uh, this is not uncommon, is it, Carol? No, it's more common than people want to believe because it can it can hit anybody at any time and or at at any place. Um, it doesn't it doesn't look at uh, sociological issues or cultural cultural issues, age issues, gender issue. It can just show up, and then I think that's what's most frightening. Mm-hmm. So your first trip down into the pit, um, and you said that ECT is that the correct way to say? Yes, you can say you can say either. A, a, yes, that's fine. ECT or shock therapy, one or the other. Okay, it's just electro. Yeah, it's electroconvulsive therapy is what ECT, ECT stands for. Right. You said it was your ladder up and out for the first time. Yeah. What can you describe that experience? Um, I think people can visualize being down in a in a pit or a mm-hmm. well where it's dark, there's no light, mm-hmm. and then being being up and out of that. What did that feel like the first time? Well, it wasn't. I didn't feel anything the first three. Excuse me for the first three treatments, John. Um, but on the the fourth treatment, I remember my husband coming in and tears running down his eyes because he saw life in my face. I had a dead affect up to that point. And it was interesting because the people around me uh, noticed um, life coming back into me more than I did. Um, for me, it was it was interesting because it wasn't until maybe my 12th or 14th ECT treatment that all of a sudden I feel like there was a veil lifted from me and the rest of the world. So for others, they saw it much quicker than I saw it. Mm-hmm. And then you said that it didn't last. Um, well, it lasted for four years. For four, four years, years, I was depression-free. I mean, the anxiety has never gone away, but I was uh-huh. depression-free for four years, and then it returned with a vengeance. Um, I went down quicker and... Um, mm, Yes, and hit rock bottom uh, much faster than I did the first time. Uh-huh. And uh, went back into the hospital again be- and under suicide watch because every single time I've had depression, I have become consumed with suicidal ideation. Uh-huh. Um, and went back into the hospital, immediately started ECT this time. Um, and uh, got out of the hospital much quicker, and I saw recovery recovery quicker, because I had been there, done that once, so I understood what I needed to do to um, accelerate the process. Right. So each time you're learning, um, you're learning some, you're getting uh, other tools besides the medication and the shock therapy, right? Each time you're getting more tools. Absolutely. Absolutely. so then there's a third and a fourth uh, time, right? Uh, there, yes, there are. And are you getting tired of this by now? By, by now, well, no. Actually, I wasn't getting tired about it, but I was consumed that it was coming back because yeah, it did yeah. come back. And it came back with a vengeance. So I wasted so many healthy days thinking about the beast returning, and unfortunately, it came back. And it did it again in a four-year cycle, and it, and again in the same month, which was interesting. I only get sick in May, oh, um, wow. so uh, it came back four years later, and back into the hospital. Um, more ECT, more hospitalization, more outpatient um, therapy, and um, then it came back twice that year. Um, and I really believe. That 
that doctors haven't men, will not um, acknowledge this, but I believe that I had too much shock therapy that time, and uh, it threw me into something called mania, which I had never had before. And uh, so my family had no idea what was going on because um, I wasn't depressed, but I wasn't I wasn't acting um, I was acting peculiarly. And my assistant or my secretary actually went to my family and said, she's not depressed, but something is definitely not right. Right. And uh, ended up back in the hospital again, taken off of medication, and um, interestingly enough, having another round of ECT. And in the in these periods, let's say the last two periods, had you started? You're you're on medication. You're taking shock therapy, and you're working with a medical doctor and a psychiatrist. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. In in your strategies, which we'll get to, there's really really an important one that uh, talks about talking. Um, and who are the people in your life that you had that were uh, important people to to talk to? Um, to help well, you through these uh, Well, these I have a very, I'm one of the uh, fortunate ones, John, because I have a very strong support system. Mm-hmm. Um, for all four bouts, my mother and father, God bless them, were still alive and literally moved into my home to, t- to care for my children while I was hospitalized. Um, I have two sisters who are absolutely devoted to me, and my one sister in particular, my sister Alexis, she... Um, is my hope holder, and she will uh, come and pray with me and and says to me that she knows that I'm hopeless, but that she is holding hope out for me since she has seen me return uh, from this beast on three different occasions, and she guarantees I will return again. And she reminds me that each time I return, I return a little stronger than I was going, going in. So um, a real strong support system. My husband at the time was a very strong support um, partner coming every single day to the hospital, um, uh, constantly keeping me abreast of what was going on in the outside world since I was in a lockdown ward, uh, you know, sharing uh, general news as well as, as specific news about our children and about my family and um and neighbors and things of that to keep me uh, grounded in the present moment rather than stuck in my head, which is what the disease does. Right. God, what a courageous journey. I, You said hope holder, and I don't know if I've ever heard that before, mm-hmm. that expression. Um, and I think you said where it came from, but did did you just did that just come to you one day, or where did hope hold your? No, no, I I made the, I came with that because my sister would literally say to me, Carol, I am holding your hope. I know you have it. You don't. You can't hold it yourself. And and for anyone who's been through any kind of a depression, it is such a hopeless disease. There is no hope whatsoever. And that's why suicidal ideation uh, is all-consuming, because you want to get away from this hopelessness. Uh-huh. You want to get away from the, the pain, the drudgery of every, cons- every moment being consumed with, I mean, consumed with taking your life to the point where I'd walk past a, a clock and think if I could just break that glass and slit my throat. I mean, it was ridiculous. Uh-huh. Wow. Um, the hope holder uh, is very is a very very strong image for me. I imagine when you go out and speak, you share your story, um, 
And when you talk to other people that have suffered through this, and, and you mentioned the hope holder, does that bring tears to people's eyes? Yeah, they do. Or they'll uh-huh. say to me, I never thought about that, but I had a hope yeah. holder. And then, of course, I ask them, well, share with us. Who is your hope holder? Right. And, um, yeah, I actually, when I speak in medical schools and nursing schools and even treatment centers, I encourage the healthcare professional at times to be the hope holder because not everyone is as fortunate as I am to have a family so dedicated. And so if, if the healthcare provider can, um, come across as the hope holder for that particular person, it does make a difference because we all know that, uh, you know, to lose hope is, is, uh, it's probably one of the fundamental um, challenges in losing hope in any medical condition. When you lose hope, you, you basically curl up and die because you don't think there's any reason to hang on. That hope is letting you hang on that there is going to be a brighter tomorrow. Carol, do you answer, uh, you have some websites here, and I want to get these in before we take our first break. Um, it's www.courageousrecovery.com, and then also www.carol. Kivler.com, and that's spelled C-A-R-O-L-K-I-V-L-E-R, carolkivler.com. Is, is there a way that people can um, contact you on your website with questions? Absolutely. If they uh, go share to, stories yeah. and all those sorts of sure. things. Sure. If they go on to just if they go on to courageousrecovery.com, they can actually email me with, and I, I actually, if they give me their phone number, I will call them. Awesome. We'll be back in a, in just a brief period here with Carol Kivler, and we're going to talk about the ABCs of recovery from mental illness and Carol's courageous journey. And she's going to give us some uh, little tools and things that she has found to be very helpful in her journey uh, in recovery. We'll be right back. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Each week, Jimmy Gould brings you the stories and the people that you want to hear about. Tune in to A Current Life to hear about the journey to success, how our guests became the people they are today, and the highs and lows they experienced along the way. Each hour will leave you inspired and entertained as Jimmy gets up close and personal with every week's guest and shares ideas you can identify with and apply to your own life. A Current Life with Jimmy Gould airs Fridays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. In the spirit of Have Couch, Will Travel, Dr. Carol Lieberman creates a haven of sanity in an increasingly insane world. 
Each day we are bombarded with news of events that have never crossed our wildest nightmares. Society is spiraling out of control and everyone is reeling from it. But now there's an answer. The best way to keep sane in this insane world is to tune in to Dr. Carol's Couch on Voice America. Dr. Carol, a certified media psychiatrist, will broadcast live from her Beverly Hills office every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Pacific time. Call or log in and get help with whatever is sending you reeling whenever you need a soothing voice to calm and advise you. That's Dr. Carol's Couch every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Pacific time here on America's Voice, voiceamerica.com. A healthy dialogue for your lifestyle. Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back to One Hour at a Time with Mary Woods. I'm John McAndrew. I'm your guest host today. And, uh... Our guest is Carol Kivler, and she has written the book, The ABCs of Recovery from Mental Illness. And uh, she talks, her journey is a very courageous journey, and we've been talking about that uh, in the first segment. And in this second segment, we would like to hear a little more, Carol, about your newest book, The ABCs of Recovery from Mental Illness. Okay. Well, um, I use the ABCs as a post because, you know, we've learned our ABCs from very, very young age, so it's just easier as a memory um, device. And it starts out with what I believe is the absolute most essential part of recovery, and that is to accept your illness because it really is not your fault. Um, I fought, John, accepting this illness because... um, I was ashamed. I was embarrassed. Um, and, you know, for many, many years, I asked, you know, why me? Um, right. And uh, that why me attitude is, is, is visiting what I call pity city. And I felt, I found myself for the first 10 years of this illness literally becoming a resident of pity city because um, I had a victim mentality that really prevented me from really moving into long-term recovery. And um, what really did the trick for me to accept this illness is I found the National Alliance, um, uh, the, the National, uh, the National Alliance on Mental Illness, or NAMI, um, which is just NAM dot org. And NAMI is a um, a national organization, but there are state affiliates as well as county affiliates all across the country. And I remember a friend calling me and saying, do you know about this thing called NAMI? And I said, no, I have no idea. She said, well, there's a state conference um, next weekend. Why don't you go? Well, I showed up, and I literally found my family, my second family, because they literally embraced me. They didn't judge me. They didn't look down on me. um, And they... I found people that knew what I was talking about and felt like I felt, and it was it was this large relief thinking that, oh, my gosh, there are other people that understand this. And they literally um, said to me, Carol, until you accept that you have a non-curable illness, a manageable illness, but a non-curable illness, you will never get into long-term recovery. Uh-huh. And, just, and it was, John, it was like a light switch for me 
because once I found them and I shared my story, because see, it was a dark secret. Nobody knew that I had been in the hospital. Nobody knew I had had shock therapy. And so I was harboring all of that um, guilt. And the minute I shared that, it was like my life opened up again and I became whole again. And so just accepting your illness, it is not your fault, um, made, was the number one strategy. And when I talk to people from all over the United States and I ask, have you ex- really in your heart of hearts accepted your illness? I will tell you, most people will say, no, I have not. Yeah. We have had guests that are, have shared experiences and knowledge of 12-step programs, uh, addictions and alcoholism and all sorts of things. And uh, it sounds like a very common thread, um, this thing about acceptance. If your house is on fire, there's there's not, not much need to try to figure out where the fire started. You have to get out of there right. and take care of yourself um, mm-hmm. and the acceptance of that. And it, it seems to be the same with mental illness. Yeah. It is. You've got to accept, again, you didn't cause it, you know, you didn't bring this on, you're not lazy, you're not, unfortunately, mental illness is so misunderstood in this country still, and there's no parity between mental and physical illness that it's, it's uh, you know, two-thirds of the people that could be treated don't get treated. Only one-third seek treatment because the uh, stigma is worse than the illness itself. Well, I think you're helping God, I well, love your little terms, pity city. Oh, pity man. city. Well, I don't one. know about you, John, but I have actually meant the mayor of pity city. <laughs> <laughs> I was on the city council for about 12 uh, years. Okay. <laughs> so you know what so, I'm talking about. Acceptance. Okay. Acceptance. What is the next one? All right. Well, um, well, then we go into believe belief that you believe that you can remain productive. Um, I remember when I was hospitalized, um, I was told, you know, you'll never be able to go back to teach again. It's too much stress. You know, you shouldn't do this. You shouldn't do that. I, I used to say to the doctor, "Stop shooting on me," because uh-huh. they were limiting my potential. And so I literally had to really look at my belief system and my self-talk to um, really, uh, literally give myself a pep talk every day. Listen to me. You might not be able to do what you did before, but you can get up. You can go to the grocery store. Today you can cook a meal for your family, maybe wash some clothes. And as I started to get... um, Stronger and stronger, because for me, the illness takes away my, I stop eating, I stop sleeping, so I have to learn all those, right. all those just regular hygiene kind of things all over again. But as I got stronger and stronger, then my productivity became more and more to the point where after my fourth hospitalization, no, no, let me think, was that my fourth? No, after my second hospitalization, I went and went to graduate school. Oh my goodness! And, and um, did a graduate degree in, in uh, human resource education to help me in the Kibler communications part of my life. And I recall dr- coming home on the train, the, my final class after I had defended my thesis, and I remember crying, John. And I remember thinking, oh. "Oh my God, I got through this without getting sick." And I remember. The, just the relief 
of, of doing this because it was frowned upon by the doctors that I go back to graduate school in such a in such an aggressive program. And I wanted I, I have the kind of attitude is when people say you can't do something, oh yeah, watch me. And so I got through the program. So wow. number B is be uh, believe that you can be productive again. I mean, they tell you to go on on a disability. That's ridiculous. They are limiting people's potential. Yeah. Yeah. So that was the B, but C is like my all-time favorite, and that is really commit to your treatment plan, because okay. all I heard in the hospital is the patient is non-compliant, the patient is non-adherent, and I would say to the doctors, the reason the patient is non-compliant and non-adherent is because that's what you want me to do. I haven't committed for myself to take this illness by its horns and wrestle with it. And so what I mean about commitment, it's about holding yourself accountable to keep yourself in recovery. Commitment to make lifestyle changes, no different than I would have to make if I had heart disease or cancer or diabetes. When you have mental illness, you need to make lifestyle changes and commit to those lifestyle changes for the rest of your life. Right. It's right. not. This is not a one-shot deal. You're talking for the rest, and, and I'm not only talking about um, medication and, and um, talk therapy. I'm talking about um, things like um, exercise and sleep protection and journaling. So I'm talking about a lot of things from acupuncture that helps with my. Um, Anxiety to massage therapy that helps with my uh, depression. So I'm talking about a lot of lifestyle changes that I have committed and became self-disciplined. Like this morning, I was at the gym at six o'clock. All right, I watched nutrition. Why? Because the meds. I got a thirty-pound gain on the last medication change. So I would love to have a, a, a corn muffin dripping with butter and and uh, orange marmalade, but. I can't. So today, like every morning, I had a protein shake with fresh fruit. So you've got to make lifestyle changes. Yeah. You have relaxation strategies. Oh, I do. And boundary setting written in here. And I'd like to hear what your thoughts are on relaxation strategies because I, my goodness, if we could bottle that, right? Well, relaxation strategies of, well, for one, I mean, this morning I had a massage, an hour massage. That's a relaxation strategy. Okay. Okay. Um, uh, Some of the other relaxation strategies are um, journaling and hobbies. To have a hobby where you just kind of lose yourself. Uh, For me, it's needle kind of... um, needlepoint kind of things. Um, that, that, that helps. Deep breathing probably is the easiest stress management strategy that you can use, and you can do it at any time, at anywhere. So just breathing much differently than we normally breathe, which is a very shallow breathing. Um, I've used yoga as a stress, uh, as a stress okay. relief strategy. Um, so meditation of some point, and, and one of my, probably one of my biggest stress management strategies is prayer. Yeah. It's absolutely prayer, prayer, knowing that, first of all, I'm not alone. 
secondly, that, you know, I believe in everything. What God brought you to, God will bring you through. And so um, I really, I, I surrender. I surrender um, a lot of things to, to, to God. And yeah. I, that really takes away a lot of, that probably, helps me so much in my anxiety because the word my illness also makes me believe I'm going to be financially ruined for some reason I go to the finances and so um the minute that I completely released all financial um worry the God, the minute I released that, it's interesting because not only did uh, my anxiety lessen, but my business boomed, <laughs> which was well, very interesting that that's what occurred. Yeah. You know, and I think um, your commitment section is very powerful because I believe that research now shows and evidence-based studies and practices show that all these things that you're doing, uh, Carol, change the brain. Yeah, and, absolutely. Changed and we don't me. need to get into why and and, and what and how and and uh, too uh, too intricate about it, but it happens, and and you're obviously living proof of that. And to have a disease of the mind, it seems that the solution is kind of in our feet, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Is that what you're saying a little bit? I'm saying I'm saying when you have a, an issue of your mind. Yeah, right. Well, you know, I believe that this illness is a mind-body, spirit illness. It's Uh not because even though your mind is, is, oh, my goodness, spinning with all kind of irrational thoughts, your body is consumed with, uh, I had joint ache, and um, I I felt like I had a helmet on my head at all times and very bad headaches. And then my spirit was, you know, it was... The rug was pulled out of my spirit. I didn't have any passion. I had no desire to live anymore. So mental illness is is all-consuming, body, mind, and spirit. Okay. And then A, B, C, D. You want me to go to D? D is developing a partnership with your treatment team. Uh Um, I believe that you you have as much responsibility as your treatment team. as your treatment team has, and I, and I use an old adage that says it takes a village to raise a child. Well, when we think about people with health, mental health issues, I call it it takes an entire treatment team to support an individual with a mental health disorder. Uh-huh. So it's not just your it's it's your um, psychiatrist, it's your psychologist, it's um, if you're if you're working with your 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 general practitioner, um, you need to to really. Um, become partners uh, with establishing trustful, respectful relationships with um, your treatment team, keeping the lines of communication opened. Um, and I often tell people that, you know, information is a, is a um, keystroke away. So keeping abreast of the latest and greatest treatment options that, that uh, is not only your healthcare professional's job, but it's your job. Um, an informed consumer is, is, a, uh, is what you need to be. And if you are not in the position to be an informed consumer, then you need someone to act as your advocate, as a as a um, someone who that who can stay abreast of these these treatment options that are available. I know that my children are constantly researching and sending me because they have asked me have have really made it quite. Um, known that they would like to see me do something rather than ECT the next time. Uh-huh. And uh, only because I do lose three months of my life every time I have um, 
ECT treatments until I can really get clarity of thought to go back to work. So, um, yeah, there's, you know, the new magnetic therapy, and there's all kinds of new things coming out um, over the last 12 years. So just keeping abreast and be really becoming your best advocate is important. It's not your healthcare professional's job to find out what's going on. It's yours job as well. And you have to continually develop that, don't you? Yeah, and develop that relationship. And I'm a big one who I fired more than one doctor, that's for sure, when uh-huh. the doctor wasn't listening to me. So I believe you've got to have a really good relationship with your with your treatment team. And, and if you don't feel like they're working in your best interest, you need to find somebody else. Right. We are talking with Carol Kivler, and her story is incredible. And, uh, uh, you know, and her solutions are incredible. Her book is The ABCs of Recovery from Mental Illness. It's just one of her books. And we've, when we come back, we will talk some more, uh, maybe X, Y, Z, about the book. And, again, Carol has a, has a website. It's www.carolkivler.com. Spelled C A R O L K I V L E R, and uh, anybody, anybody listening or anybody that you know that may need some help or direction, uh, we highly recommend that that you go and, and look for some answers. And uh, when we come back, Carol, we'll get to the uh, X Y Z. Does that sound good? That sounds like a plan. We'll be right back. Your life, your health, your network. This is Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. There are a lot of health questions that your doctor doesn't always seem to have the time to answer. Every week, you can have these questions answered and find out a lot more about how to improve your health on Getting Real About Nutrition with Lisa DeFazio. You'll talk to Lisa and her guest experts about diets, meal planning, healthy food ideas, and medical issues. We'll also talk about foods to avoid, allergies, and supplements you should or shouldn't be taking. Listen every Wednesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We all want peace. We all desire a more meaningful life. We work hard to achieve these things, but at what avail? The key is authentic living with Andrea Matthews. Andrea will interview some of the great spiritual experts of today and will provide wisdom to help you raise your consciousness to the level of your own I am. Your authenticity can give you miraculous gifts, but you have to know how to get there. Listen for Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. Heard live every Wednesday afternoon at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the 7th Wave Network. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health & Wellness. 
You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back. Uh, my name is John McAndrew, and I'm your guest host today for Mary Woods, and we've been speaking with Carol Kibler, and uh, she's talking about courageous recovery, changing the face of mental illness, and uh, her story is incredible, and we've been talking about her newest book, The ABCs of Recovery, and uh, maybe you just continue, Carol, where you would like. Sure. Well, we're going to move to the XYZ. So X is express your feelings and fears by journaling. And uh, I started journaling in the hospital. They, that was taught, you know, get it out of your head and put it on paper. And um, I learned that it was a way to heal from the inside out because uh, journaling is a stress reliever. It's a communication tool, but more importantly, it's a confidant where you can just pour out your heart's uh, your your um, fears, your joys, uh, any topic is, is game for journaling. And there's no right or wrong way to do it. It's your way. So um, I journal, believe it or not, John, I journal for 15 minutes every single morning before I interact with another human being. Well, that's and a I, commitment, isn't it? I, well, it's one thing I have is self-discipline. Wow. And um, it has it really does make a difference. I start my day doing something for myself, which is another part of, of, of self-care. Is um, I, I work in a field where all I do all day is give, 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 and give out as an executive coach. And so before I start giving to anybody else, I have to give to myself, and I do so by journaling. Sort of a way of filling your cup back up, isn't it? Absolutely. What do you do when you're busy? What do I do when I'm busy? If for journaling, I I know that's a million-dollar question when some okay. people have make time in the morning. I guess you've got to make the commitment to get up early. That's all it is. It's not that you're busy because here's the real ticket. You will put in your life whatever you make a priority, John. Okay? So right. if a priority in your life is journaling and getting to the gym every morning, guess what? You go to bed a little earlier. Because if it means that journaling and exercise five days a week, well, I journal seven days a week. I don't exercise seven, but I journal seven days a week. But if I know that that's part of my wellness plan, remember, lifestyle changes, then I will make, I will, I will, it's part of my life. It's just become a habit now. I can't imagine not journaling in the morning. Wow. Is that part of, I want to go back to the bees, the believe part. Um, You've got to get out of that pity city or that oh. feeling that I don't feel well enough to get up and run, and I don't feel good, and I'm not supposed to feel good, so right. it's okay to lay here and pity and, city. Right, and waddle away hours uh-huh. at a time without really doing anything. And um, do I do I do this when I'm sick? Excuse me. I doubt it. I got right. it, okay? Because when I'm sick, do I journal? No. Do I exercise? I do not. I don't have the energy to do anything. However, since I made such a commitment 12 years ago to do this every day, I haven't been sick, John. <laughs> so wow. it, it has just become part of my, my daily, it's become part of my existence. But you're not perfect. 
Oh, gosh, absolutely not. Oh, good. I, I, was I wouldn't even try to be perfect, <laughs> okay, because it's, it's too hard. And so why, So I love journaling because you don't have to worry about grammar and you don't have to worry about spelling and you don't have to worry about sounding mean or your tone. You can just lay it out there. Do you ever go back and read? I do. And how and you, does that help you? Uh, you know what's, well, you see the growth in yourself and you see how you solve issues and you see, I, I, I like going back in my journals and I, I have my daughter's commitment that when I am no longer on this earth, that the first thing she will do is take all of my journals and put them in a big garbage pile and throw them away. Hmm. The delete button. The delete button. Yes, because they're all handwritten. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I have books upon books upon books. And imagine 12 years, 365 days a year. <laughs> so there's a lot of journals. Wow. There's a lot of journals. And yeah, so start, I do read, start today, and, right? Yeah, yeah. If you can start today, start. Yeah. Okay. So let's go to why, which is yearn to be your best advocate. And um, I, I, when I wrote this this little essay about yearn to be your best advocate, I, I remember looking up in the in the dictionary what the word yearn. Um, how it was defined, and it it says to feel tenderness and compassion. And I believe that people with a mental health disorder really need to feel that tenderness and compassion because not only is this a long-term illness, but it's a misunderstood illness that brings stigma with it. And unfortunately, stigma does interfere with many people uh, making the decision to have treatment. So I... I um, tell people when you're ask a lot of questions, um, find the resources that you need to get the answers that you need. Become an informed advocate about what are the services that are available, and really educate those around you to dispel some of the myths that still linger in the public's misconceptions about um, illness. And when you know, when I stand up and I say, you know. My name is Carol Kibler. I have long long legs and long arms. Um, I have dyed hair, and I have clinical depression, uh, medication clinical depression. It's just a part of me. It doesn't define who I am. And I believe the minute we let any kind of of, um, ailment define who we are, we lose a part of ourselves. And so I'm a big um, proponent of really just becoming your best advocate to stop being ashamed. And it's interesting when I share and I say to them, you know, many audiences, people won't uh, say anything to me until after I speak. And then they'll come up to me and they'll say, my sister, my brother, my mother, or me. How have you become so comfortable um, just admitting all of your frailties. And I said to them, that was the first part of of my recovery, was to just accept that I didn't cause this. I didn't do anything that brought this on. It was just my Achilles heel. You know, I have a a grandson um, who um, is autistic and and, um, is challenged with diabetes. He didn't bring that on or cause that. That was just part of his genetic... um, Component. Well, medication, medication resistant depression is part of my, my gene pool. And when we look back now, John, I see so many of my cousins, my mother, my, my grandmother had depression, but nobody ever talked about it back oh. in the 40s and the 30s. 
You know, they just said, my, my, my grandmother, they used to call it, she had dark days where she stayed in bed. Well, she had 12 kids, so people were thinking she needed a rest. Well, she probably had depression. Yep, yep. At that point, but we didn't talk about it. Uh, my father was an alcohol, uh, you know, he had an alcohol addiction. He was probably struggling from depression and self-medicating, but we didn't understand that then. Yeah, we thought, you know, they're weak-willed. They're and, weak-willed, exactly. You know, they don't uh, mm-hmm. trust God enough, or there's a lots of, you know, or they're just uh, not a good person. Right. And it was none of that. It was none of that. So yearn to be your best advocate and learn as much as you can about this illness so that you can ask the questions, become informed, and do what it, do what you need to do to take care of yourself, which is my Z. Zero in on taking care of yourself every single day. Now, our world is a fast-paced world, and it is eaten it, it, our, de- our time is eaten up by life tasks, from working to taking care of your home to fostering relationships and caring for pets and making doctor's appointments, managing finances. But the bottom line is when we, we are so busy, we put self-care on the back burner. And that in itself is a um, prescription for disaster for someone with a mental health disorder. So I have made self-care I put it on the front burner of my life, and I have made uh, I have made a, a daily commitment to myself to take care of myself in ev- every single day, because I recognize that self care really infuses me with energy and a sense of well being, which has a positive impact on my levels of enjoyment and happiness and personal productivity. So um, I've awakened my best self. Uh, I treat myself as the most important person in my life, and um, I am amazed at the difference in my attitude and enthusiasm towards life. Uh, So self-care has become a top priority. Now, it's easy for me to say that now because all of my children are all grown and married and out of the house, and the only one that I take care of is a cat right now. So it's easy for me to put self-care at the top priority. I remember my daughter often says to me, Mom, I, was, I always admired the way you got up in, um, when we were growing up, when we were young children. You would always get up a good hour before us, and we'd come downstairs, and you would be having a cup of tea and reading a book or the newspaper. And I always used to think to myself, my gosh, I wonder why she gets up so early. And now that I'm a mother, I find myself doing the same thing because you were taking care of yourself before you took care of us, weren't you? And I said, you know, I never thought about that, but I knew that my life with three children under the age of four was going to be total chaos when I first woke up. So I guess maybe it was my way of just calming myself down before the um, ruckus of three toddlers coming down the steps for the day um, took place. Yeah. I just so much is in this book and so many things. To, I, I have a couple questions, though, and I, I'll just tell you, where the question comes from, my mother had seven kids, a good Catholic mom, and uh, I remember being in grade school. The stigmas that surrounded my mother had mental illness issues and ended up going to the Mayo Clinic. Oh, okay. And uh, I remember the nun took me out of school. We went over to Rochester, Minnesota to see my mother, and I didn't know. She said, be prepared because your mother may not be who she used to look like. I'm in eighth grade at this point. 
Right. And she, they, she had shock treatments. And when I went to see my mother, she didn't recognize me. Uh-huh. And she, she looked kind of scary. And, uh, you know, that was my experience. And, of course, we never told anybody where my mother went. We never yeah. said anything. And, my goodness, she had seven kids. Mm-hmm. You know, all these things. So the stigma, what happened, Carol, and you know this, um, is my mother was deprived of the love and attention yep. that could mm-hmm. have lifted her out of that. Yep. But what yeah. about shock treatment, and what can you tell us? It, uh, it's not the same. I know it's not. No. Um, and how, how is it different now than it was back in 1963, I guess? Yeah. Well, when it was first given in, in 1939, shock treatment was given without anesthesia. The people were tied down and held down and with restraints and things of that. People ended up with um, chipped teeth and broken bones and because there was no muscle relaxant. Today, um, shock therapy is given first with an anesthesia and a muscle relaxant to keep your um, keep you from breaking bones and things. Um, I like to tell people that uh, ECT is the defibrillator of the brain. When our heart stops, they shock us. Or they shock our heart with electricity. Well, when the neurons in our brain um, are misfiring or or not firing at all, the shock therapy wakes them up to the point where they start reconnecting again, uh, which will then lift, lift us out of the pit of, of depression. And um, it is, it's done in an outpatient or an, in, as an in outpatient or an inpatient. You have anesthesia. You're, the whole entire procedure from when they put you asleep to when you wake up is, is less than 15 minutes. It is the quickest thing there is because the, the treatment itself is anywhere from 30 seconds to a minute. Um, today, when I first had shock therapy back in, in 1990, they gave me the, the, the dose that they gave me was based on I was a female, I weighed this much, and I was this age. Today, they do what they call breast, uh, brain threshold tests, where they will literally be able to uh, look at your brain and see how much activity your brain is it will will withstand. Um, the biggest um, challenge with shock therapy, as your mother had already uh, experienced, was um, memory loss. Today, memory loss, is, they have lessened memory loss very much so uh, because they can now, um, they can, um, uh, they, don't, they give you what your brain can withstand. For me, it's short-term memory loss. It takes about three months after the last treatment for me to really regain my short-term memory. So, unfortunately, I can't work for about three months after after I have shock therapy because I, I'm, I'm a speaker. I stand up and I talk to people or I'm on the phone um, coaching executives, and I can't remember what I said. So it, it's impossible for me to work uh, for about three months. Um, However, what I have noticed, and, and I'm sure that, John, I'm sure I've had some long-term memory loss because my children will say, Mom, remember when? And then I'll say, well, give me some more information, and I, uh-huh. I have no recollection. And people will say, doesn't that bother you knowing that you have memory loss? Well, no, because I don't know how much I lost, first of all. But even more importantly, I don't really think I would be here um, in this world if it weren't for ECT because... I, could, I would either be in a long-term uh, treatment um, place where in a lockdown ward because I can't get out of suicidal ideation, or I would have taken my life by now with the hopelessness that this, that this um, illness brings on. So I believe that 
ECT for me is my silver bullet. It it slays the beast. It has slain the beast over and over again in my four hospitalizations, and and I will do whatever I can to keep ECT as a treatment option. Does it work for everybody? No, but what right. medical what medical treatment is a hundred percent? has 100% efficacy. There doesn't exist one. Right. Now, ECT has an 80% efficacy with um, medication only having between a 40 and a 45% efficacy. So bingo, that in itself is an improvement in uh, in um, uh, your chance of getting into right. recovery. And that's all a part of what you've been talking about is get the information, see what works for you, yeah. mm-hmm. commit to a treatment plan, We've been speaking with Carol Kivler, and Carol, uh, this is one of the most uh, powerful shows that I've been a part of, and I want to thank you for your courage to eliminate some stigma about mental illness, but, but to also provide some tools. Your book, The ABCs of Recovery from Mental Illness, you can find it at www.carolkivler.com. And also another website is CourageousRecovery.com. And hopefully you can see and meet Carol somewhere speaking around the world. And we want to thank you very, very much. Oh, it's been my absolute privilege to be on your show, John. And thank you for letting me share a little bit to help break this stigma. Thank you very much. appreciate you joining us today for one hour at a time. Successful recovery from a substance abuse problem or mental illness depends on education and support of loved ones. Thank you for being that support system. Be sure to tune in next week for another hour of education and compassion. One hour at a time. We'll see you next week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.